If we don't have educated people coming out of our villages, then we can say that our demographic dividend, which is supposed to be young people, is actually going to be a demographic demolition. We cannot just say go to the state capital. We need to boost the medium and small enterprises in tier two cities and districts, and that's where the government has a role to build up those cities. Uh, so not Bombay, not Pune, not even Nagpur. Now look for tier two in Maharashtra. You know, China is attractive for two reasons. One, it is a place where manufacturing can be done with good quality at low prices. Number two, it's a very large market, and people forget that. For example, General Motors, which is a U.S. company, sells one particular brand of cars, Buick, B-U-I-C-K, more in China than in the U.S. And there are more electric cars bought in China than in the U.S. because the population is large and the people have the money. Since you people are young, you should think of the next 15 years, not the next two years. Think of the 15 years. So my aim is to say, triple the GDP in 15 years. Forget this five trillion story. Now take our GDP as 2.7 or whatever, 2.7 trillion. In 15 years, we should be nine trillion. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bigger Picture. a podcast where we bring to you everything from current business and economic trends interesting macroeconomic theories to guidance in the field of economics from renowned personalities i aradhya mittal and i himanshi mittal are going to host today's podcast with dr subodh mathur on a very interesting topic integration not summation the path to 5 trillion dollar economy Dr. Subodh Mathur has been an independent consultant since 1988, a PhD from MIT Cambridge with a wide-ranging international and US policy operational experience. Sir has contributed a lot from working with the World Bank for decades in sustainable energy development and universal access to electricity and cooking stoves in East Asia and Africa to working with DC Public Service Commission, DC Department of Environment and US Postal Services. So we welcome you and we are extremely proud and grateful to have you here with us. Well thank you for inviting me. Now beginning with our very first question. Sir, from your graduation in 1970 to this pandemic in 2020, you have witnessed many historic events. The LPG policy taken up by India in 1991, the 2008 financial crisis, then the demonetization and now this coronavirus pandemic. So, how has your perspective changed from the time you were a graduate to today? Well, uh, so far as uh, India is concerned, uh, the big change is that India was a poor country at that time, and it was difficult to see how India could become a major regional economic power. and today we can have that hope that india can become a major regional economic power so if you want the very big picture that's the change uh let me tell you an example of what i mean actually i got my masters in delhi from delhi school in 1972 and in 1972 i came back to jaipur my hometown to teach at rajasthan university and the head of department was professor raj krishna a very eminent economist who later became a member of the planning commission and he had gone to 
Lucknow to give advice to the UP government. And when he came back, I asked him, sir, what did you see? He said, so both nothing moves in UP. Even the fly was sitting in the same place as it was last year. Even that has not moved. What are you asking me? So, so that was the situation that very hardly any things used to move. We didn't used to see major changes. And it was a pretty uh, difficult situation. Of course, you know, people were optimistic and we were not depressed in any way. We were all young and excited and happy in that sense. But no one could see that India would become a major regional economic power. Today, that hope is there. A pandemic will come and go. And if you look at the next 15 years, I think India has a great potential in the next 15 years provided uh, we get our act together. It was indeed a great experience. Let's hope for the better times. Uh, now, without any further ado, let's quickly jump into the very interesting topic for today's episode, the path to $5 trillion economy. Sir, if you may please explain to our listeners why the combined efforts of all the state is required to achieve this particular dream and how we as individuals can contribute at the local level. Sir, please. Well, first, let me say that, let me talk about your contribution as individuals. I think uh, the most important contribution of individuals is to elect politicians who are interested in India's economic growth. You know, they have to be interested in economic growth for elections. Uh, yes, I understand there are a whole lot of issues. It's politics and politics is politics. Let me not comment on that. But once politics is over and you have a government in the state or whatever level, uh, then it must focus on bringing economic development. So I think the responsibility of people is to make sure that this is what happens. You know, they, apart from that, I think young people... You know, the time for, you know, in our days, they used to say you must sacrifice for the nation and do this and do that. I think those days are gone. You know, those days are over. Fortunately, your older generation sacrificed for you. You don't have to do it anymore. You just have to do your own work the way you want to do it. Enjoy your life, make money or do NGO work, whatever. You are free. They, you know, we are not a poor country of that type anymore. So young, educated people are free and they should do what comes to them and do a good job. So that's one part. Now, why do we need the chief ministers? Because two reasons. One, we are a very large country. No large country can be easily run as a democracy with all policies and actions being decided by one government which actually has very little information about what's happening at the grassroots. Because they're too far. Delhi is too far. You just don't have any clue as to what's happening in all the parts of India. And second, the constitution gives a lot of power to the chief ministers. This is deliberate because they recognize that it's a big country. You can't run it as a democracy from Delhi. Or you cannot even run it easily in a very large state like UP, you really don't have a sense of what's happening in different parts. So unless 
And let's be specific. What are the key things that the chief ministers are responsible for? Two big things. Electricity. So many power companies lose money. Now, when they lose money and then the states say, we don't have any money we need to get from GST. Well, why don't you stop making the losses on the power companies and use that money for something else? And second thing is agriculture. And you know, India's agriculture is lagging behind. Now, the union government had a key role to play in the 1960s, bringing in technology. But those days are gone. Today, the whole world is there on the internet. You can connect with anybody like you're connecting with me. When I was your age, we couldn't even make a phone call home. Forget connecting around the world, right? Nobody had a phone in the hostel and nobody had a phone at home. So where would you con So today, the job of the chief ministers is to give a boost to agriculture. That is the number one priority. And they need to give a boost to medium and small enterprises. The union government tries very hard, but they cannot do it. They have no clue. They have no agency that deals with these people. So what do they do? They say, let's give them loans without collateral. Now, when you give loans without collateral, that's a sign of desperation. It's not a plan you know, to make sure that there is growth. So for these reasons, I think, and by the way, the school education. I mean, the school education in Indian villages really stinks. You know, the government schools are awful. The union government can't do anything about it. And if we don't have educated people coming out of our villages, then we can say that our demographic dividend, which is supposed to be young people, is actually going to be a demographic demolition because we'll have millions of undereducated people who will not be able to be productive. So that's my answer to why the chief ministers are so important. Yeah, so coming to the next question, uh, sir, in your articles, you have majorly mentioned about the northern and southern states. However, northeast states also have a great potential. Their beauty, nature and culture can be used to create the next travel and tourism hub. So what's your take on that? Well, I didn't mean to neglect the northeast states. For example, I have not even... Uh, talked much about uh, Punjab and Haryana. The reason is that in terms of population, these states are small. And in terms of their contribution to GDP, these states are small. In fact, I haven't even mentioned Kerala, which is one of India's leading states, because in terms of population, it is small. So if you are going to raise, increase any all India number, then you have to go to the states that have large population because if they stagnate and the small states do well, the all India numbers will be low. So it's not that I have anything against the Northeast states. If you notice the articles I write, don't mention Kerala, Punjab and Haryana. And Kerala and Punjab were considered the model states in the 1960s and 70s. And Kerala is doing very well, but it's so small in terms of population. Now, certainly the Northeast, uh, we can, uh, I've seen many, you know, some of my friends have gone there. I have friends from, uh, who are Khasis. I know people who are from Mizoram. So yes, there is a great potential and we should certainly develop their tourism and also gives a chance 
to people to understand the culture of that place. It's very important. But it will not make a big dent in the all India numbers. So that was an insightful answer indeed. And I would really like to ask this question based on that. What can actually be done to attract more investors in these states? See, investors is very tough to get. Okay, even I grew up in Rajasthan. Rajasthan cannot get investors because investors go to places where there's already a culture of industry and the ecosystem is there. So if you are thinking you are going to get a big factory set up in Rajasthan, you are going to be in trouble. Okay, Even though it is so close to Delhi and even though it is trying once in a while, you cannot get investment because you don't have uh, the engineering colleges, you don't have the financial system, you don't have uh, <clears throat> enough electricity. All these issues are present. You know, investors are looking to go to places that are profitable. By investors, I mean large companies. But my answer is let's focus on the medium and small companies. They are everywhere. They are India's future. Thinking about large investments, yes, it's useful, but you have to focus on medium and small enterprises. They are everywhere. They need to be boosted right where they are. Thinking that I'm going to get the Japanese to come and invest in Rajasthan. Yes, the Koreans are there, but they are there right across the Delhi border because they don't want to be in Delhi. But if you ask them to go to some other part of Rajasthan, they don't go. And I understand that. They are there to make money in a place where it is possible to produce and make money. But the local enterprises are everywhere. And the local skills and the local talents. And the chief ministers are key to it. Now, of course, if the union government has some money, subsidies, uh, etc., then that's great. Uh, but really, the chief ministers must remove the obstacles. And recently, there was an article published. And I won't even mention the state because it is, you know, the author was hit by the state. He, he wrote an article of how long it took him to get permits uh, for some small business that he wanted to start by converting an agricultural land to industrial use. Nine months. He failed. He wrote that article. Then they forced him to write a retraction that is actually not true because somebody made a mistake and that the government would get him the uh, licenses or the permits. And the next day, the article, that article also vanished because the government's hostile. They're saying, listen, do you want an article or do you want a permit? So this is the problem that we don't have a proper attitude towards promoting the local businesses. So, and you can get some people to come, say, from Bengal to the Northeast states. You can get some people from Assam to come from to the Northeast states and states like, and everywhere. So even Rajasthan, they have to dig into, you know, they once said, okay, we will ask the Marwadis of the world to come to Rajasthan and to invest in it. Well, so the Marwadis of the world obligingly came and they invested nothing because there's no in atmosphere to invest large amounts of money. 
So I come back to the same point that we need to invest in uh, our medium and small enterprises. And we need to do this. Now, let me add one more point to it. We need to invest this. We need to build up tier two cities. We cannot just say go to the state capital. We need to boost the medium and small enterprises in tier two cities and districts. And that's where the government has a role to build up those cities. Uh, so not Bombay, not Pune, not even Nagpur. Now look for tier two in Maharashtra. <laughs> in West Bengal, we have only one big city and that is Kolkata. This is not going to work. We need the small enterprises in tier two cities. That should be the backbone of creating jobs because what we want to do is to create jobs. And the hill states, Perhaps even the capitals are not. Uh, Shillong is already uh, sort of crowded and so on in uh, Meghalaya. So we need to have this approach. In short, focus on tier two cities in your state and promote medium and small enterprises. They don't need your money. They just need you to support them instead of running around from office to office to get. Now, I heard that UP has now put in a system of one-stop shop. Okay, you go there and they tell you exactly what you have to do, get all the clearances, get all the permits, and you are done. If so, that's great news. I haven't verified it, but that's the right idea. Support the people, give them a friendly hearing. And as we have just written, my brother and I have written in an article for Rajasthan, remove the public interface. Let it all be online in the local language. Just make it possible to do things sitting from your smartphone. You don't even have to go to the office. That should be the aim. So that's my answer to focus in this way. Use the technology, use the medium and small enterprises in tier two cities. That's the backbone of our growth. So as you said that we should focus on removal of obstacles. But if we look at the recent policies introduced by the government, like demonetization and GST, we can clearly see that the government is focusing on stricter taxation and auditing. Now, the people of India are not really habitual of paying taxes if we look at the history. So what I notice is this has led to a fear in the minds of small businesses and investors. So what can be done to ensure proper taxation and bring a change in the mindset of these people? so that the businesses can actually boom and the market does not go down. Yeah, I agree with you, but yeah, I don't want to get diverted into demonetization because demonetization is now history, okay? We, uh, the chief ministers are, should be able to support the businesses and say fear of demonetization. Okay, we got hurt once, it won't happen again. GST, now, GST is actually not a bad idea. I mean, there's a lot of support for GST. Its implementation can improve. So we are now not talking about policy. We are talking about administrative procedures. So certain level of businesses can be made exempt. Now, that's a problem. How to make them exempt? Because that leaves a gap in the GST process. So the GST process requires actually... Uh, everything, 100% coverage, because 
if you are buying an input from a small company, then you are the large company, so you have to account for it in GST. And that means the small company also has to get into GST. So that is an administrative process that some smart people have to work out how to do what I call as light-handed regulation of small firms. This is indeed a puzzle because what we have done is we have put the whole heavy regulatory system on everybody. But we cannot do that for the small. I'll give you an example. When we try to set up, I've been involved in rural electrification uh, all over the world. When we try to set up small independent power systems to serve a couple of villages in Africa, we provide a separate set of rules for that electricity provider. It's not the same set of rules as for what we call discounts in India or the large power companies. They have the time and money to comply with the full-scale rules and regulations. But if you are a small electricity producer just serving a few villages, uh, then we reduce the rules and regulations for them. Now, it's easy to do in electricity. It's harder to do in GST. I'm not claiming that they should just follow from electricity. And even in India, for the small, now, of course, there are no small left. But we could do that. How? That is actually something that practical people need to figure it out, not people like me who are more conceptual and who are more academic type. We cannot figure it out. But some clever people who have their feet on the ground and understand how it's affecting small and medium enterprises have to work out a system by which the GST regulation is not the same for large companies and small companies. And if somebody does that, I think the GST can actually be very useful. It's not that they don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to have the government poking around into what their profits are and what the black money is and so on. So we have to move them gradually from a culture of, uh, you know, cash transactions, black money, mm. and government, uh, non-interference into this. And we could get the local educational institutions to help the small and medium enterprises into coping with this. So this should be a free service provided in collaboration with local educational institutions that look, we can help you comply with GST. You are having a hard time, come to us. We will do it for you. It's like, you know, low income people who have to pay income tax. They don't have the means to actually do the income tax forms in the US. They go to some place where they say, okay, we'll do your taxes for you for free because it's a support system. So we need to, this is part of a financial support and technical support to small and medium enterprises. So let me broaden this point that the medium and small enterprises need financial and technical support. And one part of this would be uh, help in coping with GST. So, I, I mean, this is all talk, you know, this is not very practical, but then I'm not a very practical guy, not a very practical person. And there are more qualified people who can, if they agree with this idea, who can say, okay, fine, 
in my state, in my city, we will go to these enterprises and say, listen, you are having a hard time meeting with GST and other financial issues. We will help you. And in fact, I know some places where this is actually starting to happen. Uh, there is a foundation called the Deshpande Foundation, which is functioning in uh, Hubli. Uh, and there they are beginning to offer this kind of support. Deshpande Foundation, Mr. Deshpande made a lot of money in the U.S. and he lives in U.S. But the yes, foundation sir. works in India. And they are actually helping small and medium enterprises uh, to cope with some of this. They have not yet done much, but that's the starting point. So we could get there. We are talking a lot about the MSME factor. So there was a news recently. I'll quickly read that out. Uh, the government has uh, launched 15 challenges for Indian startups and MSMEs to solve for a grant of rupees 50 lakh each. And this program has been launched by Niti Aayog's flagship initiative in collaboration with ISRO and various ministries. Uh, so, so, how do you see this challenge thing and its impact in parallel to Nirbhar Bharat? It's a good idea. You know, uh, three years ago, uh, the union government was not paying much attention uh, to MSMEs. Uh, they did have the Mudra Fund, but the focus was on getting foreign investment, FDI, large investment. And the union government focused on improving the World Bank ease of doing business index in India, which they did successfully. And, but those investments don't create jobs. They come with large amounts of money when they come and they set up production factories, but they don't create multiple jobs. Now, the union government has recognized that MSMEs are really the key. And not the only thing, but one of the key things. So that's great news. Now, we must distinguish between startups and traditional MSMEs. They are both small, but those who are startups they are technical people. They actually don't need government grants. What they need is risk capital. Now, risk capital, a grant is a form of risk capital which doesn't have to be repaid, right? But it's a hell of a job to apply to government and get grants, you know, because the procedures are very lengthy and they don't have the skills and the time and the motivation to go through those forms. I mean, we've as for the World Bank, we sometimes we floated uh, funds that say you can get this grant. And the people would say, listen, your procedures are too tough. So we would have to simplify the procedures. So if you are going to give away grants to startups, which are technical, then the process must be simple because these people are young and impatient and they cannot deal with this bureaucratic system. They just are in a different world. I mean, I'm part of a bureaucratic family, so I know what it is. They are not going to be able to deal with it. Better is that you don't work against them. And you set up a system. Now, this is a long run, so I'll come to that later. But let's talk about the other MSMEs. Yes, they do need money. They do need money. And if you can give them some grants easily, that's fine. But 
what I am saying is all these efforts by the union government are not going to be enough. I am happy they're doing it, but unless we get the states and the chief ministers to facilitate them, union government programs cannot deliver the goods. So, so on the startups, we will talk about that in a broader context if you want, but let's focus on the traditional MSMEs that make goods that are normal in India. We need to improve their quality. They need technical support. We need to make them world-class. If you look at the small firms in Germany, they make world-class products. The small firms in India don't make small world-class products. We need to improve that. And for that, they need technical assistance, maybe from the NITs or from somebody else. So that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I won't comment on any element of the union government program except to say it's a good idea. But I come back to the point that they need technical and financial support that is local. So that's my answer to that question. That was a rational and insightful answer from your side. Uh, Radhe, I request you to answer the next question. So addressing the elephant in the room, this global pandemic has caused India's GDP to suffer a great fall of 24%. How do you think this pandemic will affect the 5 trillion dream and how long will it take to recover? Okay, first, let's go back to what was happening before the pandemic hit. The 5 trillion dream was never a possibility. It's a mirage. It, let's not discuss it. 5 trillion, yes, it will happen, but not in the next three to four years. It was impossible at any time. Okay, that's point number one. And in fact, it was so impossible that Mr. Piyush Goel, who is otherwise a very good cabinet minister said, please don't do the mathematics because we will do it on faith. Okay, I will leave it to him to do it on faith, but I still need to do the mathematics. Our point number two, Economic growth had slowed down before the pandemic hit. If you look at the data for January to March of 2010, with the pandemic hitting India only in the last two weeks of March, the growth was 3.2% or 3.5% or 4% or something like that. Too low, too low to create enough jobs, too low to get you into being a regional superpower. So, we were not on the right track before the pandemic hit. The pandemic has just made things much, much worse. Okay. And really, unless we get the pandemic under control and we can give some sense to the public that they won't get infected, uh, it's not going to be recovery time. The problem is the government, union government has withdrawn from the fight against the pandemic, has left it up to the states. The states don't have the resources or the skills or the departments to do this. They just don't have the money. They don't have the people. So they just impose emergency lockdowns in this city, emergency lockdowns in that city. Other than that, uh, where is the... Uh, plan to contain it. There is no plan. So unfortunately, the only other people who might have been able to do this job is the nonprofit sector. 
but the non-profit sector has no experience and no money and they are clueless on what to do so they are able to provide food to people who lost their jobs and so on and that's fine but they are not able to help in controlling the pandemic because they don't know what to do and so we are stuck at this moment i think it will be but there will be some recovery and people see some green shoots and what we now are thinking is that it will not be v shaped it will be k shaped k as in the letter k one part of the economy is going to recover and one part of the economy is going to go down so that overall on average uh, you are not doing very well and the, so green shoots are not a sign of overall recovery green shoots are a sign of recovery in some sector and indeed there will be but there will be other sectors where there's no recovery uh, there's an article saying that india will lose billions of dollars in tourism now you know rajasthan and goa kerala they depend heavily on tourism but they aren't going to be tourists this year no indian tourists and no foreign tourists and even if some people come you know they are the younger people who are more adventurous but they don't have money to spend so they backpack around the place and you know, they don't buy the stuff that is local handicap because they have not much money so we are going to suffer a lot in tourism which is a major industry in certain states and even for up taj mahal is going to have limited number of visitors so we are going to see certain sectors which are located in certain areas suffer and the green shoots there there are no green shoots this is not going to happen on the other hand you will see uh, green shoots in what people buy and consume at home uh, because we haven't stopped buying things at home and that people are willing to do like in diwali they will come and people will buy new clothes new tv or new whatever people buy at diwali these days i'm not sure because i live in the us but that they will buy but they won't have a party of 100 people they won't go out on a vacation they won't do any of those things so you see what i'm saying that it's a split economy some parts will recover and other parts won't unless you can tell the people who have money to spend it's okay to go out and spend because you won't get infected telling the people that the death rate is low is no comfort i just don't want to get infected and i am 55 i am not 55 but suppose i am 55 years old i don't want to be infected and sick for two to three weeks and who knows i might die too so i don't go out and do it so uh, so long as that is the approach that people have and the fear that people have there's no point in saying our death rate is low it's like saying okay my neighbor is going to die you think i should be okay with it no so i'm afraid that unless we find a solution to controlling the virus it's not going to be easy to get a full scale recovery within months maybe after some time when people learn to live with it right now we don't know how to live with it so it's a not a it's not an optimistic assessment for the next 12 to 18 months but after that if vaccines have come and medicine has come 
and it becomes like any other disease, then yes, we can see the full bounce back. Sir, now coming to the next question, there has been an increasing global resentment towards China. Japan is literally paying its companies to shift their production to India. And there's a general ideology to move out of China that started because of the trade war between China and USA. Can India still gain from this ideology? Yes, very much. And it, India can gain in two ways. You know, China is attractive for two reasons. One, it is a place where manufacturing can be done with good quality at low prices. So you can make your iPhone there. You can make many things there, right? Number two, it's a very large market. And people forget that. That, the, for example, General Motors, which is a US company, sells one particular brand of cars, Buick, B-U-I-C-K, more in China than in the US. So, and there are more electric cars bought in China than in the US. Because the population is large and the people have the money. But China is a very attractive market. So India has to think of both of those things, that India is an attractive market and India can manufacture. Now, the first thing that comes to our mind is, can we manufacture? But here we face two choices. Do we manufacture for Indian consumption or do we manufacture for export? When we talk about manufacture for export, then we face very stiff competition from Vietnam, in clothes from Bangladesh, and generally from countries in East Asia where Chinese companies have already started producing. Because many people think, why should I say made in China? I can say made in Thailand. And it's made by the same Chinese company that has hired people from Thailand. So in making products, for export, India has great potential and India has the skills, but India doesn't have the ecosystem. Our infrastructure is not up to speed. Our rules and regulations are too cumbersome and our financial system is in disarray. We have banks with NPAs, credit is not readily available at good low prices. So manufacturing, like what do we see? One company has shifted shoe production from China into Agra. But Agra has a reputation as a shoe making city for a hundred years at least. My mother is from Agra, so I know. So it's a easy fit. But what else can you shift into India and spread it across the state? So if Rajasthan says, please come and make cell phones here, no one's going to do it. You can get cell phones made in Tamil Nadu. You can get cell phones made in Maharashtra. These are the places where there's already a manufacturing ecosystem. So it's not going to be evenly distributed across India, even if we get uh, the companies to come and make, or even Indian companies come up to speed. Why do we need foreigners? We, can make, we can't even make international quality cars yet. You know, our cars cannot be exported. Why? Because we have told those firms to make it for the Indian market. So we don't have the export capacities. Now, 
I would say that is not a problem uh, that can be solved in one or two years, but it's surely a problem that can be solved in four to five years. Get your act together, improve your power supply, improve your roads, let the people do what they want to do, uh, not so many bureaucratic hassles. <clears throat> and yes, we have the capacity. We can do it. There's no issue in my mind. We are uh, absolutely capable of competing with every country, provided the chief ministers and the union government make up their mind that we can work together and get this done. They can, yes. So it's an optimistic message. But don't expect great uh, changes in the next one to two years, because I just read an article in the Financial Times that for in a survey done in Shanghai, 70% of the foreign firms said there are no plans to shift out. This place works. This, so China has major advantages over others, over years of work. We can do it. And since you people are young, you should think of the next 15 years, not the next two years. Think of the 15 years. So my aim is to say triple the GDP in 15 years. Forget this five trillion story. Now take our GDP as 2.7 or whatever, 2.7 trillion. In 15 years, we should be 9 trillion. And that's what uh, people of your age should be looking to. How can we get to 9 trillion in 2035? Because trying to just solve the problems of the next two months or next six months or you know COVID or this or that distracts you from the next 15 years. And actually, my aim is to write some op-eds now in local languages. We just, my brother and I just published one in Rajasthan in Hindi, in a Hindi newspaper, to get away from this obsession with the union government, which is a plan for the next five to 15 years. Don't think about this COVID and all. It will go away. But what were we doing great before COVID? No, we weren't. So just thinking that COVID is our problem is not the answer. We weren't doing great before COVID. We were not a manufacturing hub. So we have to change our attitudes. And we have the potential. We have the people. We have the skills. We can do it. But we need to have a longer horizon and think about it with a strategic view as to where are the policy changes, and the administrative processes. India's administrative processes are just not in the digital age. We need to put all of them in the digital age where people can do things on their phones, not have to go to various offices. Just like banking now, nobody goes to a bank, right? Yes, sir. Last, last time I went to a bank in India, there was no crowd. Why? Because everybody is doing banking on the phone, right? So there used to be huge crowds, now there's no one. So we need to shift that to government also. Don't have people go to government offices. Shift it all to, and that's what young technical people should be doing, to go to the government and say, we can digitalize not your financial transactions. That's going to happen anyway. Your administrative processes. That's where we need to go and make it simple so that you are sitting in any country you can get your approval, you can get your okay, you can get your grant digitally. You don't have to go anywhere. 
So digitalize the administrative process. That's my mantra to you today. And then see, because then it's transparent. You don't have to pay any bribes, okay? Mm -hmm. Don't have to pay any bribes. Don't have to give something to some chaprasi or the other. All those issues we need to get rid of. And yes, in a couple of years, maybe, I mean, look, it took China some time to become a world power. It'll take us maybe four or five years and then we can become a regional power. No issues. So based on that answer, do you think India should extend some incentives to foreign companies and foreign investors, like some tax benefits or something like that? I don't think we need to give them any incentives. You know, the biggest incentive is that we have a huge market and it's growing. So they will come. There's no need to give any incentive to anyone. Now, one state may compete against another state uh, and say, listen, invest in my state. I'll help you in this way. That's separate. At the national level, I think we have uh, uh, everybody's attention. People are scared a bit of China. It's a big market, but, you know, it's not politically stable in the medium run. You know, it can... Even the rich Chinese are investing their money abroad. They buy homes abroad. They buy their money, keep their money abroad because it is potentially unstable. India is stable. So we have a market. We are attractive. And if people want to come and make for Indian market, they, they will come. And the problem is we don't want them to do it. I mean, IKEA wants to set up in India, so many problems, you must do this, you must do that, you, still they are there, right? And when these other companies come like Amazon, and we make it hard for them because we see that they compete against our companies. So try giving them incentive, it's, I think, anyway, a bad idea. We don't need to give any incentives to anybody. What we need to do is to say, listen, we are a friendly place. Uh, we won't give you re retroactive taxation. That's a big problem. The Supreme Court okayed retroactive taxation. So we won't give you all those hustles. You can just come and you can invest. That's, other than that, I don't think uh, we need to give them any incentives. Why? Because they won't create many jobs. You know, They bring their technology and they produce with a large number of machines, uh, and, which is fine but they don't create many jobs. And the technology is available, I mean, in many ways across the world. And we need to do it ourselves. Our companies, are, our people are capable, except we don't give them the incentive. We have to we tell them is make mediocre quality cars and we won't force you to compete against high quality cars because we put a 200% import duty. Right, So they say, fine, we can make mediocre cars. They are not the world-class cars. They don't have the latest technology. They have technology seven to 10 years old, but that's fine because Indians don't need to have the best technology. So we need to actually make our companies, give them the stick and the carrot to make them world-class. That's As for foreigners, let them come. It's fine, but don't give them any incentives to come we have a large enough attractive market and if our workforce is attractive the problem for india they say is that the wages are low but the output is even lower so you know the real cost of labor in india is not cheap because 
China, they pay, what, $3 an hour or $4 an hour. India, they pay $1 an hour. So it's very cheap. But you are not able to produce the same things of the same quality in the same period of time. So the labor cost is negated by all these other factors. So solve those factors and the foreigners will come. There's no need to go out and attract them. That was long ago in the 1980s that China did it. It's an outdated way to do business. We have the skills. We have the people. I don't see the problem. To the next and last question for today's episode. So your book, Core Economics, Concept and Application, is the same genre as Freakonomics. It too focuses on real-world issues. So what was your inspiration behind writing this book? Okay. Well, you know, once I started working with non-economists in a team, and this is way back, I realized that the non-economists really don't understand even basic economics. And I stopped blaming them. I started saying that the, it's the fault of the economics profession, that uh, they don't know how to teach people who are, don't want to be economists. So about 12 or 13 years ago, I went back to the university where I used to teach economics, uh, mainly PhD students, and said, listen, guys, I think I can do a better job of teaching non-economists because I've been working with them for, let us say, 20 years at that time. So they said, fine, uh, let's see if you can do it. So I said, listen, I will teach only courses I've never taught before and all aimed at non-economist master's students. So they let me do that. And there were questions of, you know, can I still teach? Will the students... And I said, listen, I'm not going to teach from textbooks because those textbooks are a serious problem. I will write my own stuff. They said, wow, you're mad. How can you write so much just for one thing? I said, listen, that's what I'm going to do. So I taught for many years and it was quite successful in the sense that the students got the point and they understood what I was saying and they were not drowned in jargon and mathematics and graphs and so on. I mean, I'm not against mathematics. I'm a mathematical type, but I'm saying that when we want to talk to other people and also in my work, I used to go to many countries and talk to senior government officers, talk to ministers. And you have to explain things to them in simple language because otherwise they'll say no to you. So I had built up uh, an expertise or experience in talking about economic issues in very simple way. And I'd been long thinking of writing a book like this. Then what happened in January this year, 2020, I was to teach a course at uh, Johns Hopkins University. I had not taught there before, but they asked me to come and teach. Why, I don't know, but one day they selected me. But then, unfortunately, in ja late January, the course was cancelled. Uh, so I was left with quite a bit of spare time since I had not taken up any other assignment. So then, and I was a little bit hurt and disappointed, you know, my course is not there. 
so to give to bounce back i just sat down and started writing a book and i did not know exactly how it's going to go but it would not be my old lectures from the class that i taught because now i didn't want that but i just sat down and wrote like a maniac you know people think of uh, writer's block for me i was at the exact other end i would just sit and write and write and write and write and my wife would say why don't you stop what the heck is going on i said no i can't stop i have to write so i wrote it and i asked several people who are not economists to review each chapter for clarity and several times they said ah this makes no sense to me you got to go back and redo it so i did it i redid it and i asked people who said look i don't understand any economics i said yeah you are the target audience please read it so in the end i decided and you know these days you can self publish on amazon and pothi quite easily and i had some experience with it so i just decided to go ahead and do it so there it is now uh, initially i was hoping to do everything in 200 pages but then i realized that i cannot i'm not so brief so i just wrote part 1 which runs to 240 pages and i will write part 2 which does microeconomics and international in a while but there it is i wrote it and uh, you know it has good reviews but not enough sales so that is my key issue right now uh, that the many good reviews on amazon and many places but there are not enough sales uh, i'm hoping to have the time to market it a bit but right now i do have some other things to do so that's why i you know it was like an idea that had been sitting in my head for quite some time and i never had the time but then i didn't have to teach and so i freed up my time and i turned it into a book wow so that was something really amazing that uh, you have done and uh, i am sure that i would definitely give the book a read yeah please and there are free yes, excerpts sir. available on profmathru.com so you can first see the free excerpts and see if it uh, something that makes sense to you it's not written at an intro level it's actually written in simple language but it starts off with the modeling you know professor akerlof's model which we don't teach yes, we are in uh, sometimes master students or sometimes Uh, third year students or something like that anyway that's the long and short that it was an idea whose time came fortunately with that we come to an end and i would really like to thank all our listeners we talked with dr subodh mathur and we are really really thankful sir thank you ecospire will be back with another episode of the bigger picture stay tuned and please do give us a follow on instagram for more economics related news and trends Thanks a lot